Welcome to our fifth session of the Boulder Bolding. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Alec and I have been rudely interrupted, as everyone else has, with the coronavirus. And so our plans uh, to meet together for discussion has been uh, postponed. And so this is our first time we're going to try doing this via telecom. So I'm going to give Alec a call and we're going to have our conversation via phone. Hey, hi. Alec. Yeah. Well, what's been going on? Um, mostly staying at home, going out for uh, walks, and believe it or not, uh, bicycle riding. Well, good. It's about time. Yes, three, <laughs> three times up to now. Well, it's kind of <laughs> nice right now because there's no cars around. Yeah, so. tomorrow is snowing, so we won't do it. No. <laughs> yeah, and then um, uh, cleaning up and down, mostly up. Me doing pretty good work, considering <laughs> uh, what I usually do. <laughs> uh, and then uh, my office downstairs, I can see one quarter of the floor. Oh, well, you're making progress. <laughs> In the right direction, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, and also I've been uh, preparing for these two classes at uh, Oli, okay. the Zoom class. Which classes are they? Uh, the Coronavirus and Economics. All right. Tell me about yeah, the class. Yeah, ca the categories for the four. four. Yeah. Uh, for the four uh, classes with, you know, additions and subtractions, etc. Right. But uh, the, the good news is that two days after the registration opened, both classes were full. Wow. Well, of course, it's a big topic, so... Yeah, it's a big topic. Yeah. So here are the four categories that I came to with my co-facilitator, the fellow that does the oligarchy and democracy part. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the first one is the resiliency of, you know, the, the medical resiliency of the medical system and also of the human body. Okay. How, how resilient it is. I got that idea from Stiglitz, you know, the economist, saying about the ideas uh, around the economics profession are not very resilient. That is to say, they work and work in somewhat stable way when things are normal. But if there is a punch or, a, you know, an exceptional sort of event, right. a black swan, as it were, uh, then it can break the system rather than the system responding with resiliency. If, if it is resilient, then it responds. You know, it doesn't just take it as a given that everything will be just hunky-dory every day. Yes, well, this very much relates to the book that I'm reading right now called Forecast. Oh, um, very good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's how meteorology and physics can uh, inform economics. And he basically really goes after the whole idea of equilibrium and economics as a fantasy. Yes. So yes. it sounds very similar to Stiglitz. Yes. 
that... What's it called? Forecast, what physics and meteorology and natural sciences can teach us about economics. Part of it is just saying how much this whole idea in economics of the the system balancing itself out, equilibrium, you know, the market yeah. can always correct itself is just a fantasy. It's and it doesn't it doesn't match reality at all. Yeah. And so it's very interesting that you're talking about stability because that's exactly what he yeah. says exactly. is yeah. is absent. You know, neoliberal economics has been after the efficiency of the market. Yes. And, and he says, well, in natural systems like the weather or or the cosmos or in biology, you you do have efficiency, but efficiency can actually create instability. So a good part of his book is talking about how actually the search for the perfectly efficient system creates volatility. Very good. And he says that's that's yes. what's left out of economics is they what what they don't leave out of physics is what they call dynamics, you know, that instability. And so he actually advocates that what they need instead of an equilibrium, a disequilibrium. Disequilibrium. Things are inherently unstable. <laughs> you know, and they yeah. can you know, just like the weather, it's the weather is can, you know, can go to normal. Yeah, you know, there's a stability to our weather, but but they always understand. He, uh, let's see, one of his quotes is he goes, "The problem with economics, they're like weathermen who don't understand storms." <laughs> you know. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> so very good. Yeah, exactly. The same thing. Yeah. I, uh, actually, th- this is very good, uh, Keith. Thank you very much for telling me about that because me- meteorology. When it first started, the prediction about tomorrow was it was going to be the same as yesterday or today. Yes. He talks a lot about that, the, how the, yes. the whole history... And, of... and it has evolved yes. from that. Yes. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you don't have any, a model of how things change, then what your first guess is, it's going to be like tomorrow. Yeah, or like, like yesterday. yesterday. Like, like yesterday. Today. Yep. Yes, yep. that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and we also have that tendency, do we not, as human beings, is, hey, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll more or less be the same, or at least my body will be more or less the same as yesterday. Correct. And we're terribly surprised and get very, very either angry or scared if something is not ordinary. <laughs> right. Yeah, like when we do... <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, if you wake up in the morning and can't see... <laughs> you don't just say, oh, well, I understand that this change and this too shall, shall pass. You, know, you yeah. go in right. <laughs> a fit. Right. So it's understandable, if you will, but it's not, uh, it's not terribly useful to assume that that's the case. Right, exactly. You know that there are going to be fires, you know, or floods. So you don't wait until there's a fire before you start training firemen and building fire trucks. <laughs> yeah, so the same thing. This, this, that's what the, this book I just finished is all about. I'm right, going to write a little article about it, just oh, good. kind yes, of sum, summarizing some of his points and interactions with it. But uh, So good. So the, the, the first, you asked me about the four parts. So the first part is 
the non-resiliency of the human body, that we depend on an immune system to keep it stable, yes, more right. or less. Uh-huh. And then, uh, every now and then, that immune system is challenged. Right. And you get sick, <laughs> because the, the force of the blow, as it were, is, is too much for the immune system, and so therefore the immune system in its intelligence attempts to find ways of fighting this new blow, so to speak. Right. And see, this is exactly what this guy in this book is. He's a physicist, basically saying economics is the only discipline that doesn't accept reality the way it is. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, biology works this way. The cosmos works this way. Weather works this way. The atmosphere yeah. works this Physics, way. Yes, our human, right. our yeah. human bodies yeah. work this way. <laughs> And so a key thing with him is that they won't acknowledge f- uh, the feedback. Now, that's a physics term. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. In other words, a totally efficient system is going to create feedback. And the more efficient you are economically, the more you're creating instability. And so he's a lot of his book is really outlining how that works. That's very, very good. I've got to get it. So... Uh, this issue of feedback, you know, is terribly important, um, and it relates again back to Kenneth Boulding. You know, he had the three major contributions. One was about, you know, steady state that was picked up by um, Herman Daly. Right. The other one was the grants economy, one-way right. transfers, you know, like UBI. Yeah. The opposite of debt. You don't, uh, if things get trouble, the, you know, you just give away right. money. Right. You don't, you don't uh, loan it so that you can get both the, lo- the amount back plus interest. And which is what is desperately needs to happen now. They're just... Exactly right. Exactly there just needs right. To be, people just need to be granted rent-free. Rent I mean, that's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, people just need it. And apparently, Denmark is doing that. Just that they're they're saying. And, and you and you'll get it back anyway. I mean, just like you know, for myself as an example, I went through BA, MA, and PhD for free, by and large. Right. You know, in right. the United States, in mm-hmm. Berkeley, and in Boulder. Right. And then uh, I worked for fifty years. Right. So they got. You know, service out of me were from taxes, and, uh, you know, if some of my teaching was worthwhile, that's it. You know, the society got more than what, it was an investment, in other words. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking so, of set, steady state, I read that in the paper today, where, where they're, they use that very term, steady state, to talk about the stable, stabilizing a city with the coronavirus. Ah uh-huh, yes. Then yes. They, they actually use the they're actually using this term steady state. Yeah. I uh, so yeah. I thought that was very interesting, you know. Yeah. So so one is uh, you know the grants economy, the other one is steady state, and the third contribution that he made was in systems theory. He together but with Bertalanfi, you know, it's a disputed as to who was first, but it doesn't really matter. You know, created um, general systems theory. Right. And that's 
And the way that he summarizes it, Kenneth Boulding summarizes it, is superb. It's, um, you can't ever do only one thing. Right. Uh, that is... <laughs> because it will have side effects. That's a feedback. Right. And some of the feedback is good. You know? It, right. Well, yeah, feed, and some apparently, of it is really bad. <laughs> apparently a feedback loop is where, you know, uh, you... you, ha- you do something that seems totally efficient, but it creates a negative uh, response, and then that negative response feeds back towards you know the cause, and then it just generates a mess, you know. Well, I mean, the, from the point of view of the modern medical system, is you give somebody a drug at the age of sixty, sixty-five, it has some beneficial effects, you know. It does, reduces the symptoms. Sometimes, if you're lucky, it actually heals something, uh, but it has side effects. And then you give another drug for the side effects of the first drug. Right. And so it goes. So by the time you're 65 or 70, you're given, on average, five drugs. Right. <laughs> yeah. It makes a great deal of money for, for the industry, right. obviously. Anyway, so those are the first two. The first is the lack of resiliency in the body and in the health system, as, as it's, you know, the physical part. Mm-hmm. And the second one is the lack of resiliency is the, in the economy. Okay. So you get a punch and it's sort of... The third one is, uh, what do we do to recover in the short run? And okay. uh, the fourth is, what do we do to recover in the long run? Because often we do things in the short run that makes the long run even worse. Okay. So, well, that sounds good. It's going to so be. So that's the skeleton. Well, maybe we can uh, parse some of that out in our uh, in our little podcast that we're doing here. Yes. So, by the way, I'm. And re- then I want to tell you before we go in to see if you uh, agree with that. I, you know, I connected it with the mechanism of terrorizing and then going for peace but it's a pax romana you know it's imposed peace oh okay yeah because you can't just live on terror all the time yeah right you, yeah you can't be whipping your slaves no. on a regular basis you know things so you Correct. got to just yeah keep them thinking that they are they are slaves right so that you can have a peaceful existence right know, in everyday life so this part I find is uh, useful for explaining this increasing debt and, you know, your work, right. essentially, and Michael Hudson, etc. The The thing I'm attaching it to is there's quite a bit of uh, material that is surfacing having to do with Albert Camus, you know, the French writer right. from Algeria, right. uh, on, the, on the plague. Yeah. There is a novel called The Plague, and I think I remember reading it uh, as an undergraduate in Berkeley and was very, very taken by it. Right. And so the thing that is really remarkable is that, you know, it comes out of nowhere, unexpected, you know, people are not prepared, etc., etc. They go for being terrified by this plague all the way to them being utterly relieved uh, after it's over. Right. And the doctor, who, just like 
now practitioners and nurses and doctors continues to work for uh, treating people. Right. But the difference between the general population and the doctor and many of the others is that he considers that this will happen again and again and again. It's never treated for good. Right, and that's what my book is about. You, you know, exactly. Like you, you've, exactly. You've got I to start. You exactly about that. And initially, the fr- French intellectuals at the time who had been very impressed by his first novel, The Stranger, you know, really went after him about the plague mm. because they thought it was that he was saying uh, it was a metaphor for the Nazi occupation of France and that once liberation, then there was liberation. There wasn't anything bad afterwards. But his uh, view was it was it was about Nazism, but it wasn't confined to Nazism. Right. That there are these these uh, things that come in unexpectedly and can be very nasty. Right. Well, that's part of what he's saying is we we've got to come to this point where it's like these things, uh, economic downturns, economic bubbles. You know, we have to learn how to anticipate your feedback loops. And, and do modeling and research and to which we can say, okay, just like what we do with the weather, we say, okay, it's, <clears throat> it's going to be nice, just like the weather was last week here. And it was beautiful. Yeah, and, exactly. but, and it's here we are with shirts on and gardening and it's like, yes. and uh, ironically, I'm out there chopping wood prepared for a snowstorm tomorrow because... That's right. Because, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and that's because we have and, modeling and we can now and we've perfected forecasting and we understand, unlike the economists, that you, you know, there are storms and storms will come. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and in storms in everything, right? In relationships, in economics, yeah. Yeah. the weather, in yeah. in political uh, stuff. I mean you yeah. know, the, the the other thing about Camus which is so after his uh, death, uh, car accident, because 61, uh, a number of people thought that he was coming very, very close to being a Christian. Not necessarily that he had a conversion, but the way he approached things was, was mm. very Christian, very interesting indeed. Because what he says about Sisyphus and about the plague, and Rear uh, says that again, you must, we must imagine ourselves as happy under those conditions. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, my, my author, very interestingly, at the end of the book, because he talks a lot about rational choice, you know, the whole idea of we're all rational beings making rational self self-interested choices and yes, so he yes. talks about the theories behind that and, but what he comes out with a lot of research of, from sociologists and, and psychologists and neurophysicists is that what dominates our thinking more than a some sort of rational notion is the need for a coherent story and that's yes. the kind of rational choices we make. It's based on 
how does this fit into my coherent my my story of how things all fit together yes see and that that's right boy that makes a lot of sense that you know because one thing that baffles me is i i don't get how 40 percent of our country can can possibly back this this trump fellow but it's like but see the deal is is they this this is he's just part of a coherent story for them and they don't want that storyline to end disturbed disturbed yes yes and um and i thought well what's really gonna combat that it goes back to one of my articles on my website called the storyline it's like it you know and the storyline of myth you know of end of empire you know it's like Yes. God yes. has put these 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 uh, rulers in place because they're in in uh, in equilibrium with the gods, and so that's the storyline. You need to get with that storyline. And the amazing thing yes, about that's right, that's right. And, and despite the fact that it doesn't make sense, but yes, right. Now, the the thing that I read this morning that I said to myself, oh my, you know, as you, whenever one is awed by something or, or, or taken aback by something, including ideas, you say to yourself, well, it's really obvious. Why didn't I think of it? Here, it comes from uh, Richard Rohr. All right. So uh, he says, this view of the world, the narrative, you would say, from, uh, for the vast majority of the history of the world was the view of the world was from the bottom up, mm. right? Because that's where the vast majority of people were. So they had to look up. Right. They knew viscerally and otherwise what it means to be oppressed, what it means to be poor, what it means to be miserable, what it means to be in pain, etc. Right. And then what happened with the last two and a half, three centuries is no longer where they just the very few rich and powerful and the vast majority were poor. What comes up is the middle class. Right. And the middle class anymore considers not that the system helped them to get out of poverty and into the middle class rather than just their own virtue and their own hard work and intelligence. They take it as they've achieved that. Yeah. With, you know, independently of the system. And so they take the perspective of the ruling elite because their enemy anymore is not the ruling elite. It is the people below them. who now want to take away what they've achieved in the middle class. Yep. That was a fantastic explanation for me. I said to myself, no wonder they go with the ruling elite, because they feel as if they're going to belong to the ruling elite, or that even if they don't belong to the ruling elite, it's still the case that I can get to upper middle class, let's say. Right. Well, I think also that what comes with that is, I mean, I've seen people who are quite well off, and but they don't consider themselves the greedy rich. Yes. So that's that's an irony there. Now, 
Michael Hudson just in a recent interview talked about how revolutions never started with the poor. They always started with the middle class. That's right. Because of That's... expectations. Yes. Yes. I, I would uh, uh, add to that actually that it comes from the middle class, but also sometimes from the aristocracy who uh, have uh, uh, elevated their consciousness somehow. Yes. Well, it's what Peter Turchin uh, calls uh, overproduction of elites that happens in yes. societies, and, and then which intensifies competition for things. So. Uh, yeah, but I was going for that there are members of the ruling elite who, becoming rich and powerful, then let it go. Right. Because they have, uh, they have the insight, they've grown sufficiently psychologically and spiritually that they see that that is a self-destruction for them. Okay. And, and so they go into service. Maybe like Camus or... Camus, but also Bertrand Russell gave all of his money away. It right. was uh, quite the socialist, actually. Or uh, St. Francis? Yes, St. Francis. His father was... Uh, uh, an emerging member of the middle class, right? Serving the aristocracy. Yep. yep. You know, and there's in Francis, just it's a absolutely fantastic image going into the central square and taking off all of his clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All of the clothing that you know had accumulated, all of these. Uh, right. Uh, you know, the externals that show who, right. who you you are rather than who you're, you really are. So, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, uh, let's see, you you had four points, I think we've hit three of them. The third one is uh, short-term, what do we do? Okay. So, with respect to coronavirus, it's very straightforward. I was reading the literature about the 1918. Yeah. Pandemic, mm -hmm. and they said the principal thing that helped everybody and and uh, got us out of it is social distancing. Right. That's it. Yeah. Well, that's what I read. Not a vaccine, not anything like that. Just right. Social distancing. Yeah. So you know, all of the places where that was done very early have been doing well. Right. Without exception. Correct. But they still have to keep doing it. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. Right. Then the second one then uh, is to give people money. Right. <laughs> Which is MMT, modern medical, uh, modern, modern uh, uh, monetary, monetary theory, monetary theory, and uh, universal basic income and public banking and you know all yeah. of that. Which, by the way, Michael Hudson is interview mentioned public banking because yes. when they're asking him about forgiveness of debt and those they goes well so where's who's going to pay for that and he goes well the the banks are going to pay for it oh yes that's right then the long term is much more difficult it seems to me but it's continuation of that in other words don't do it only temporarily put it into the system right Alec, I'm going to cut us off here as far as uh, this session, but 
as we return or when we return, we want to talk more about the strategies for long-term recovery and probably more than just recovery, a long-term strategy that uh, gets us out of this kind of boomer bust cycle. So I'm going to cut it off here. Hope you enjoyed our session.